chapter 34, verse 1, says, Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And then the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. Jesus, we come before you seeking your authority in what we're about to talk about and seeking your wisdom and your counsel and your understanding. And I pray, Father, that we would talk openly and be able to accept these things willingly as the truth, that you would give us, Lord, your intentions for us, And Father, truly, that that hope would reign among us, faith would increase, love, Father, would move from brotherly to unconditional agape love as we watch for the coming of Jesus. May our lives not be defined by, Lord, escapism, but defined by the fact that we know the time is short and we have a deep love for people who don't know you as of yet. And Father, I pray that this teaching, Lord, would be comforting and encouraging as well as instructive. We seek your spirit, Lord, to do this among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So December, I couldn't believe this, December 19th, 1971, one of my all-time favorite Christmas movies aired on CBS. And I've shared it before. In fact, I know I've used it for example in teaching before, but it's The Homecoming, A Christmas Story. It's that TV movie that, that spawned the series, The Waltons, that then ran through the entire 70s. Wonderful series about a family living at the time of the Depression in the, uh, in the hill country. In the, uh, the, um, oh, where did they live? Yeah, West Virginia, that, that region over there. So that's why I don't know, because it's over there. But <laughs> what? The Appalachia, yeah, yeah. These are the important things that we figure out together. That's why we gather. Anyway, the, the Walton family is written by Earl Hamner Jr. And it was, I was between actually the ages of Jim, Bob, and Elizabeth when I first saw it. So I was a kid myself. 50 years later, that's what blew my mind. It was 1971. This is 2020. 50 years have gone by. It's been re- remade apparently for a new audience. I haven't seen it yet. I don't know if I can bring myself to watch some new version of it see him mess it up. Anyway, there's a scene in it that I was thinking about this week. Saw it actually just about a week ago. And Grandpa and John Boy on Christmas Eve are trudging through the snow to cut down a Christmas tree. It's 1933. And as they are trudging through the snow on what they call Walton's Mountain, John Boy said, hey, Grandpa, we got something to show we own Walton's Mountain. And Grandpa says, well, you can't own a mountain any more than you can own the ocean or a piece of the sky. You hold it in trust. You live on it, take life from it, and once you're dead, you rest in it. John Boy says, I just as soon not think about that part of it. Grandpa says, you're not ready for it yet. John Boy looks at him and says, are you? Grandpa says, never, <laughs> never. 
The moving melody of the song of Moses was still hanging in the air when in Deuteronomy 32, verse 48, the Lord said to him, that very same day, saying, verse 49, go up to this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab across Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for a possession. He says, then die on the mountain where you ascend and be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people because you broke faith with me. In the midst of the sons of Israel, at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I am giving the sons of Israel. Grandpa said, never, God said, now to Moses. Can you imagine that trek up the mountain? On the one hand, the joy of being able to preview the promised land on the other hand, the realization that he would not go in. As a matter of fact, not only would he not go in, but he was going to die that day. You're traveling up the mountain knowing you're not coming back. We come to the end of Deuteronomy and Torah and the life of Moses, all three this morning, and to what I know is a tender topic. Rare as it is for anyone to know the time of their departure, Moses knew. And he didn't just know that day. He had been told over and over, at least seven times in this book, the Lord reminded Moses he will die before entering the promised land. Maybe that's why Moses draws out this sermon in Deuteronomy on the plains of Moab. If I just keep preaching, he can't kill me. Can't take me out. But now God tells Moses directly, says, Moses, it's time to die. Please listen to me. It's not harsh. It's just reality. Now, anytime we talk about death, I want to be as sensitive as I can, but we have to talk about it. And this morning we're going to address it because the biblical view is so healthy. The biblical understanding of death is so right and so comforting and so encouraging, regardless of if you have personally dealt with these things recently or, or in times past. It's amazing about losing a loved one is that at any given moment, you can instantly feel that grief again. I, I think about my grandmother. I, I told you this before. Sitting at her table, she had been, oh, she lost her husband. She had been living 30 years since her husband had died, my grandpa. And I remember playing cards with her at the table and I said, Grandma, you ever think about Grandpa? And tears started rolling down her face as if it was the day she had lost him. And so that's very real and, and, and felt by us and should be. I mean, we, we need to recognize the sincere and heartbreak grief of loss. This is part of the deal. Not to mention the uncertainty of dying because in reality, very few of us here this morning have ever been there. So we don't know, except what we're told, what's it really going to be like? Job said in Job 30, verse 23, one of the earliest things even written, for I know that you will bring me to death and to the house of meeting for all living. So before we even get back to Moses, can I give you a few points about death? I think that we need to understand biblical understanding. Number one, death should be practically expected. 
It should be practically expected. As David wrote Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. It is foolishness to think we're just gonna go on and on and on. It is wisdom to recognize I have a span of time given to me by the Lord. He knows the number of my days. Teach me to number them as well. There's a healthy respect there when you practically expect death. Nobody lives on and on. I've told you the, the, the statistics on this are stunning. In this present state, everyone will die, with one little exception, and I know it's what most of you here are holding out for. When 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So there are those of us who are holding out for the great escape, looking forward to that, hoping that before the time of our death, we will be caught up because there will be a people alive at that time. And these are a people, note this uniquely, who will never know death, at least in themselves. I guess the reality is we all know death whether we die or not. We all know death. We all experience death. We all will experience death, whether it's my body or my loved ones, I will know death. But Jesus said in Luke 21, 36, keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Some say you Christians are escapists, and I say, yes, we are. I don't want to be here especially for what I know is coming. But listen to me on this. Jesus didn't say, pray that you may have strength to be raptured. He said, pray that you may have strength to escape all these things. Meaning what? Meaning the tribulation. Meaning that time of testing, he says, Revelation chapter three, which is about to come upon the whole world. I will keep you from that. He promises to those who believe in him. Pray that you may have strength to escape all these things. The only means of escape from that which is coming is in Christ, as Paul said, two ways. Two ways in Christ. That is, we who are alive will be caught up together with them, and so we will be with the Lord. So the alive in Christ and the dead in Christ will all be raptured, will all be caught up together, and as a matter of fact, the dead in Christ rise first. So that gives you something to think about. Should you die before the rapture, you get to go first, which means you beat all the rest of the people who are alive. That's not a bad deal. But either way, alive or dead in Christ, we will rise. We will rise. This is not just a, a preaching thing. This is not just you know, some kind of vague notion. The Bible says we will rise. It's called the first resurrection. We will rise. Death should be practically expected. We know we're gonna rise. But there is wisdom in assuming that day will come. Either when I will be caught up or when I will pass from this life and then ultimately rise first. Secondly, death should be honestly reflected or honestly reflected upon. That is, question, are you ready to meet your maker? I mean, really ready? Are you good to go? 
Are you ready to face God? Grandpa Walton jokes of death and he says, never. And the Western view of death is just that. Never. Put it off, fear it, shun it, ignore it. But the Bible is absolutely clear about it. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We must come before him. We have to be dealt with by God in his presence. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once and after this judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear. Now he's talking to Christians, Paul is, and he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And by the way, that judgment is not a judgment of salvation. It's a judgment of gifts. It's a judgment of reward. It's the Bema seat of Christ, like the Bema seat of the Olympic Games, where the runners were awarded based on how well they did. But it is not a salvation issue because, my friends, we are saved by grace and our salvation was blood-bought by Jesus at the cross 2,000 years ago. That's your judgment day. 2,000 years back is when your judgment day for salvation happened. Accept that and you are saved. Reject that and you stand at this point condemned before the Lord. The only way anyone can be ready to stand before God is through Jesus, who said to a grieving Martha, John eleven twenty five. 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. I love that he adds, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. The raptured church, the, those alive at the time of the rapture. And then Jesus says that all-important question, do you believe this? Do you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life? Is it lip service, brothers and sisters, or do we believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. If we believe that and we're honestly reflecting upon death and practically expecting death, there's wisdom here. Are we ready? Are you ready to meet your maker this morning? Number three, death should be humbly accepted as the result of our sin. That's the deal. Why did Moses die prior even to the promised land? Look at verse 51 of Deuteronomy 32. Because you broke faith with me, God is very clear. He says later in the verse, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. And you remember what happened. The people were thirsty the first time at Mount Horeb, Exodus 17, verse 6, and God said to Moses, strike the rock so the water might flow. And that's exactly what he did. The water flowed out that first time, which is a great picture of the first coming of Jesus. Jesus was struck, the rock was struck, and the living water of the Spirit flowed. But then the second time at Meribah, God told Moses, hey Moses, this time I want you to speak to the rock. Just speak to the rock which had he done so, it would have revealed the grace of God for a thirsty people. Yes, they were complaining again, but they were legitimately thirsty. God looked at them with compassion and said, speak to the rock. I want to water my people. 
Not to mention the fact that if Moses had spoken to the rock, you know what that would have presented? It would have presented the creative power of the spoken word over the physical exertion of man. And it's not striking to make it happen. We do that a lot in our lives. We strike to make it happen and we strike out. Which is exactly what Moses did. God said, no, speak to the rock. I want them to see the power of my word. Well, you know what Moses did. He struck the rock rather than speaking to the rock. And he messed up the prophetic picture that the second time all we do is speak to the rock. The first time Christ was struck, the living water flowed. Now we speak to the rock that the living waters might flow. We don't strike. The cross was once and for all. Jesus is not struck twice. Just the one time is more than enough. So we speak to him now. Rivers of living water flow in us, the Holy Spirit in us, but God says, you broke faith with me. What does it mean to break faith? You didn't trust me, Moses. You didn't trust that it was enough to speak to the rock. You had to strike out, which is exactly what he did. He also, by the way, got angry and called them rebels without cause. Rebels without a cause. He, he called them that, and, and so in anger, he misrepresented God. My friends, we die because we break faith. Because we do not treat God as holy. Very simply put, we die because we sin. Oh, your death may not be because of a sin that you just committed and so you die, but sin in our lives, sin in the world. Romans 5, 12, through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5, 14, he says, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so death should be practically expected, honestly reflected upon humbly accepted as the just result of our sin so that when the time comes in death, we will be joyfully reconnected. Look at verse 50. Then die on the mountain where you ascend and be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. The word gathered there literally translates received or welcomed in. I like that. Die on the mountain and be welcomed by your people. Because Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-one, 31, regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. That is, I am the God of Abraham. Not I was. I am. And so Jesus says he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, alive though their bodies are buried. He is the God of these because he is the God of the living, not of the dead. Moses and Aaron were not gathered to the dustbins of cremated history. Moses and Aaron were received by those who had gone before by faith in the Lord. And that's a, an important point to recognize. Death, death has been called a doorway. Right, you, you've heard that before. Death's a doorway. That's all. It's just a doorway, and we use that phrase to try and comfort ourselves. I think it's much better than that. I think death is the entryway, meaning the entryway to the house of meeting, as Job called it. 
You know what happens in my entryway? The door opens and it smiles and it's greetings and it's welcomes and it's, and it's hugs and it's affection. And our departure from here is to our reunion there. That, that death will be a place of joyful reconnection. That is, again, for all who rise in Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, author and perfecter of faith. And when he says we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that can apply to our church fellowship. That can apply to the saints. It can apply to the church. Wait, you got witnesses around you. You're not running this race alone. You got people who have witnessed what you have witnessed and stand with you in the Lord. But, but in context, the Hebrew pastor has just talked about in Hebrews 11, all these people who died in faith. That's the great cloud of witnesses. When you read Hebrews 11, next time you read it, recognize you're gonna see those people. You are going to be joyfully received by those people in your death. And number five, in death, we can be triumphantly perfected. Triumphantly perfected. Paul, like Moses, knew he was about to die. Again, very few of us know the moment. We might have a sense of it. There may be a sickness that is leading to it, or we recognize it's around the corner, but very few of us really know when that time is gonna come. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. You know, a drink offering, which is poured out on the altar, and then psh, it's gone. Just, it just dissipates. It vanishes. I'm already being poured out like that. He says, for the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, a victorious perfection. But how do I get that victory? Maybe you listen to Paul, like so many of us, and you go, okay, he's fought the good fight, finished the course, kept the faith. Well, I've read about Paul's life. Dude, he way outpaced me. He finished the race. I got tripped up in the starting blocks, you know? He's, he's done. He's on the sidelines being cheered on while I'm on the backstretch going, <laughs> I am no Paul, you may see say. And he says, listen, you will receive the crown of righteousness by loving his appearing. It's not by how well you run. And yes, we want to run the best that we can. It's not by how righteous you are. And yet we want to pursue righteousness because God has made us righteous. But in the end, it is do you love his appearing, which is to say, do you love Jesus enough that you can't wait to see him? There's your faith. There's your joy. And that's going to overcome any fears of death. Whether we die now and are caught up first or we're caught up while alive, there is no fear in that because we go to see him. We go to be with him. There is amazing grace after the grave for all of us. As, as for Moses, now turn to chapter 34 and let's finish this book. Deuteronomy 34 
I want to give you some final words to take to heart. We call this teaching series going through Deuteronomy, Words to Take to Heart. Allah Hadevarim. These are the words the book begins. Words to take to heart because this is heart stuff. And we begin in chapter 34, if you want to note this, with the delight of Moses. The delight of Moses. Before I get to 34, listen to verse 52 of chapter 32, which God says, you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I am giving the sons of Israel. Verse one of chapter 34, now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. So let me give you your bearings. Let's get this straight here. The word Abarim, which was used in chapter 32, go up to the Mount of Abarim, Abarim, that's a plural form, and it's a mountain range. So the Abarim was the mountain range into which Moses went. Abarim literally translates regions beyond. Because the Abarim divides the promised land from the regions beyond to the east. So go up to the regions beyond. Go up to the Abarim. And he says, but go up Mount Pisgah. To the top of Pisgah, and Pisgah is the ridge. So you've got the range, and then you've got the ridge that's in the midst of the range, which is Pisgah, and Pisgah means cleft. Go up to the regions beyond, into the cleft, Moses, and then to Mount Nebo. And Nebo is the mount itself. So Abarim, the range, Pisgah is the ridge, and Mount Nebo is the mountain on the ridge in the range. Got it? Which is why all these different words are being used. Abarim, regions beyond, Pisgah, cleft, and Nebo means prophet. Prophet. So the prophet went up to Prophet Mountain in the cleft of the regions beyond to see all the land. And verse 1 continues, and the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, that is the Mediterranean, and the Negev, which is the desert region of Israel in the south, and the plain in the valley of Jericho, and the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And then the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I've let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over here or over there and it's amazing Woods says a geographical anti-clockwise sweep is described here he starts in the far north of Israel and moves down south and to the west all the way down as far south as Zoar which is again the southern regions the desert region of Israel now, I've told you all before, I've been blessed to stand on Mount Nebo. It's one of my favorite things I think I've ever done, standing up there and, and looking across. I don't know how close we were to where Moses stood. Of course, they built a church there, so that's got to be the spot. <laughs> but we're up on kind of an overlook on Mount Nebo looking at Israel, looking down to the promised land. What I expected as the bus took us up to this spot, what I was hoping for was to be able to look all the way out and see the Mediterranean and, and look all the way up to the north of Israel and all the way to the south as far as Zoar. And you know what we saw? Not a lot. We could see the valley below and, and, and then there were mountains in the way. And it was kind of hazy that day. So we didn't see really that far. We were in the right place mostly. 
But the mountains of Israel were too high. The distance too far. Listen to me. The delight of Moses is this. God gave him a supernatural panorama of the whole of the promised land. He saw from that position what you cannot see from that place with natural eyes. You you can't see that far. It's made some Bible scholars to question, well, did Moses really see it? Well, of course he did because God says, I'm going to show it to you. And he took him on a supernatural journey, a panorama of the whole thing. What a gracious gift. Moses just didn't look down into a valley of dirt and some mountains and go, "Ah, that's where they're going, and die. He saw the whole thing. God graced him with a wonderful gift right before he dies, kind of like the fictional angel Clarence. We just watched A Wonderful Life last night. And at the beginning of A Wonderful Life, Clarence is up there. He's called in to be sent down to help George Bailey. If you haven't seen it, you got to see the movie, folks. It's just, it's so uplifting. But Clarence can't see anything because he hasn't got his wings yet. He's angel second class. So it's fictional. But he can't see. And, and, and the angel, uh, I think the angel's name is Joseph. And he says, just, just look, I want you to see this. And he goes, what? I can't see anything. He goes, oh, that's right. You haven't got your wings yet. I'll help you. And at the beginning, he supernaturally, and, and it's all vague on the, on the picture screen there, and then it starts to get clarified, and you see George Bailey as a kid, so that's what Clarence sees. And that's, that's kind of the idea here, a fictional example, but the angel had to help Clarence to see clearly. God helped Moses to see the entirety of the land in a nonfiction account. In a true, legitimate way, God gives Moses a full, delightful overlook of the entire promised land. Listen to me, you can't see that far from the cleft of Nebo, but we can see very far from the cleft of the rock. We can see so far. Jesus gives us vision beyond the regions of death to the promise of eternal life. Which again is why I said what I said as we began, things like COVID, things like crime, things like calamities in our world are not things to be feared because we have been given a grand vision, a beautiful panoramic vision, something, by the way, unseen by the natural man. Oh, the natural man can read about it, hear about it, even think about it. But without faith, the natural man, the natural woman will dismiss it. Don't do that. Don't do that. Face death honestly. Seek Jesus faithfully and he will give you a delightful, hopeful vision of life. First time I studied the book of Revelation and determined just to read it as it was. Just, well, I'm just gonna go through this and I'm gonna make an assumption here that God means what he says and he says what he means. I'm just going to take it literally. Crazy thought, right? And I remember going through it verse by verse. And my friends, it changed my life. As a Christian, as I've been a believer for, for decades before. But when I finally sat down and went through it by faith to get the vision of what is ahead, the vision of what is coming, when I think about serving Jesus in the millennial kingdom, Oh, are you kidding me? This is nothing. Well, I haven't done done enough for Jesus. I've got a thousand years to do for Jesus. I'm so excited for that. And the new heaven and the new earth beyond, oh my goodness. 
What an amazing panoramic vision. Jesus said in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Or John 8, 51, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. Or John 17, 3, Jesus prays, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And over in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, we're told blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. That's, that's being caught up. That's the rapture. Again, dead or alive in Christ, the first resurrection, our resurrection. He says, over these, the second death has no power. That's the spiritual death. That's the eternal death. Won't touch you, can't deal with you. And it says, they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. I remember reading those words and thinking, wow, that puts a completely different spin on the life I'm living now. And then, Revelation 21, verse one, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Why as a bride? Because that's the church's address. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be death. There will no longer be mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away and he who sits on the throne, that is Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said to John, write for these words are faithful and true. Can you see that? Do you by faith have that vision that goes way beyond this life, gloriously into the kingdom and the new heaven, new earth, even beyond that, that makes death an entryway onto the greatest that we have before us? I, I, I look forward to that. I love my wife. I love my children. I am happy with my church fellowship. This is, this is good. But I'll tell you what, the chance to go see Jesus, y'all ain't nothing by comparison. And that's, that's the vision. This is what I'm talking about. Moses got to see it all before he died. This is what you've been working for, Moses. You get to see it. We get to see it all right now. By faith in the cleft of the rock, we look at the regions beyond and we see our life. My friends, these are not just soothing words to help us get through memorials and funerals. Revelation 21 is often used for that. It's so much more than that. Just as Moses saw the promised land, he wants you, wants me, God wants us to see the promised life if we have a willing faith to see it. Second thing to note, back in Deuteronomy 34, the death of Moses, verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. Michael, you remember the conversation we had at the container in Ghana. The big debate, did God kill Moses? 
And they pointed right to this verse. God killed Moses because God, he died according to the word of the Lord. So God said, die, and he died. I, I really think, Michael, I think the guys just like to argue. I don't think the answer is the issue. It's just the arguing is what they like to do, and, and it's fun. Did God kill Moses? Hey, God holds life in his hand. I don't think it's right to say God killed but did God call Moses from this life? Did God determine the end of his life? Absolutely, he did. By the word of God, Moses died at that time. It was God's choice, not Moses' choice. And by the way, with life and death, it's not ours to choose. It is not ours to choose, it's his. Whether it's at the very beginning of life with, an, with a, a, a fetus in the womb, that is not our choice. God has begun a life that's God's to decide. Or if you're all the way at the end of life and you're wondering, how can I go on? Should I go on? That is not your decision. That's God's to decide. He will take you by the word of the Lord when his time is right. So don't rush him on that. Don't get ahead of him. As much as we all want to be home, that's not, the point is not, well, I gotta get home as quickly as possible. Paul said, no, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm not sure which one is better because if I live, I live for your sake. But if I die, I get to be with Christ. And so what does he say? He says, I'll go on living for Christ's sake. Paul left it up to the Lord. That's what we do. We leave it to him. But what a tender Comment on a divine memorial that, note this verse six, he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. And no man knows his burial place to this day. God buried the body of Moses. Wow. Talk about an intimate friendship. Moses who knew God face to face. God alone attended the burial of Moses. And no one to this day, the Bible says, knows the place of the body of Moses with one possible exception, the location of the prophet's body. It seems there's one who may know. Jude verse nine says, Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Which means either Michael knew where the body was but refused to tell Moses, or, or refused to tell Satan, or Michael and Satan got into an argument about the body because Satan wanted the body, and Michael's saying, what do you want the body for? It's none of your business. And then off they go, and he says, the Lord rebuke you. We don't know, it's an interesting, mysterious verse there in Jude 9. But the question that comes out of it for me is why would Satan want the body of Moses? What does Satan want with Moses' body? I don't know, perhaps to desecrate it? Or maybe to humiliate Israel with it? Somehow to use it for, I, I think worse, maybe he wanted to know the location of the body of Moses to venerate it. What do you mean? Had the people known the whereabouts of the grave of Moses, don't you know they would have made it a shrine? It would have become an altar of worship. Down through the years, paganism would have taken hold and they would have ended up worshiping the lawgiver instead of the Lord. The land of Israel right now is filled with shrines and churches and memorials for all kinds of people other than Jesus. 
We try to avoid those as much as possible when we go. Because that's not the point. Church is dedicated to people or dedicated to events rather than as gathering places to worship the Lord. And notice this, I find it interesting, verse six, it says that he buried him opposite Beth Peor. Beth Peor? The house of Peor, what was there? Pagan temple. That was where Israel sinned with the daughters of Moab. That's where they got drawn into the whole temple prostitution and offerings made to the gods of Moab. It's a horrible situation. The place of Moabite idolatry, Numbers chapter 25 tells us. In contrast, God buries Moses opposite Beth Peor. The grave of Moses in a place where it would never be enshrined, where people would never come to worship at the body of Moses. But there's one more reason why Satan might want the body. One more reason he wanted to get his grimy hands on the body of Moses. Satan seems to be aware, and he reads the word. He's aware of scripture. He misquotes it often, but he he knows it. And he seems to be aware that God still had plans for Moses. Number three, if you're keeping track of this, the deliverance of Moses. If you turn all the way over in your Bibles to Luke chapter nine. Luke chapter nine. Go ahead and turn there. They were up in the northern region of Israel, Caesarea Philippi. It's where Peter had made his grand confession of faith, Matthew 16. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And just now, Matthew says six days later, Luke says eight days later, so between six and eight days. Verse 28 says, after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his faith, Jesus' face, became different. And his clothing became white and gleaming, literally white, flashing like lightning, is what the word means. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who were appearing in glory and were speaking of his, the word in the Greek is exodus. They were speaking of his exodus which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. No wonder the devil wanted to uncover the place of the body of Moses, the place of his burial. He wanted to mess with prophecy. Wanted to get in the way of what was going to happen. That there would be a time. There would be a time when, when, when Moses would show up. And I love this. There he is in the promised land. God said, you're not going in. There he is. He went in. He gets to show up. He didn't just get the panorama. He got the panorama and then he died. But after his death, now Moses is here. Elijah's here. Now, Elijah, you might understand, because Elijah was caught up in a fiery chariot and didn't die. So, yeah, so he could cruise around and come right back down. No problem. Moses died. God is so good. His grace is so great. God got Moses in. And I love that he's sitting there. Luke's account tells us we we get clarity on what Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking about, the soon exodus of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. So it's a marvelous moment. But there appears to be another call for the service of Moses. 
not only there to encourage Jesus, but toward the end of this age, at the end of this age, in the first half of the tribulation, looks like he shows up in Jerusalem. Listen to this, Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. God says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days, that's three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out from their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. But listen, they have the power to shut up the sky so the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. Only Elijah did that. That, that was the power God gave Elijah to shut up the sky. Interesting, it goes on and says, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Well, that's Moses. That's Moses. I'm convinced, and you can try and argue me to a different point, but I am convinced that in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, those two witnesses will in fact be Moses and Elijah because they are so graphically described here. And, and we see this and understand that perhaps, perhaps Satan's going, I gotta get my hands on that body. I gotta try and stop this, what is about to come. I gotta keep him from getting into the promised land and encouraging Jesus. I gotta stop the possibility that he could come back into Jerusalem. And Satan, it shows us that he is not all-knowing, that he does not understand how things work. That for all of his best laid plans, he cannot stop Messiah. The deliverance of Moses. He's in the promised land. He gets there. But the devil wanted to mess up this burial prophecy. Now, back to uh, Deuteronomy 34. I want to share something with you, and we'll, we'll come back to the chapter here in just a second. But I want to give you maybe a broader picture. And this is the writing of Josephus. Josephus wrote about the death of Moses, described it. At the time of Josephus, this would have been the first century. The last 1,500 years had been, so much of it was oral tradition and, and brought down, and, and of course was, was written before that. But the oral tradition of the Jews passed along and shared and understood. And so Josephus wrote, and some of this is corroborated in Talmud. It's not scripture, so don't take it as scripture, but listen to his description of the death of Moses. This is from the Antiquity of the Jews, Josephus, uh, book four. Finally, Moses said the time had come for him to join his forefathers as this was the day appointed for his death. He said farewell and blessed them again and commended them to God and the multitude broke into tears. The women beating their breasts and the children crying. And Moses knew that he should not be sad at the approach of death, yet what the people did overcame him and he also wept. By the way, that's why I believe Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. The grief and the emotion overcame him as he saw all of his friends and, and dear loved ones weeping. And he and his son of man humanity felt the sorrow of death as well. So he wept. Well, so, so Josephus says that Moses wept and as he went on to where he would disappear, they all followed after him weeping. Moses signaled with his hand to those that were far off to be quiet. And he urged those near to him not to make his departure so sorrowful. So they sobbed in silence and they let him depart as he desired. 
Only the tribal elders with Eleazar the high priest and Joshua their commander followed him. But when they came to the mountain range called Abarim, there he dismissed the elders. As he was going to embrace Eleazar and Joshua and was still talking to them, a cloud suddenly descended on him and he dis disappeared into a ravine. And then Josephus writes, no grief ever so deeply affected the Hebrews as did this upon the death of Moses. Verse seven, although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. As with the death of Aaron, which we looked at in Numbers chapter 20, so now 30 days of mourning is observed for Moses. This, is, this is and was the Hebrew norm. To this day, it's still a Jewish norm, especially among the Orthodox, and that is 30 days of mourning when someone passes away, when there is a death. And I respect that. There's wisdom in that. The death is faced, honestly. Grief is embraced openly as part of the process, not shoved away, not swept under the carpet, not ignored, not back to work and try not to think about it. No, you allow yourself to feel it. Jesus wept over death because death is not God's plan. It is not God's desire. It is the result of sin. And our weeping in that time of loss is right and is good and is important and is valuable. Why? So that life can be lived with integrity. So that we can continue on in life. We pause long enough to grieve over the loss. But then we move on. How do we move on? We move on knowing we will all stand, finally stand before God. We're all gonna get there. We're all gonna face him. John 5, 28, do not marvel at this, Jesus says, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. What is the good? Believing in him whom he has sent. What is the evil? Rejecting Jesus whom God has sent. It is that simple. By the way, Moses didn't die of old age. Rick, he was 120. Yeah, but his eye was not dim, nor was his vigor or his vitality abated. You know why Moses died? Because it was his time. Because that was the appointed time for Moses. Psalm 139, 16, in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. You have a number of days set. God's got it all set up. When we lose someone, we need to recognize that in that loss, God knew the number of days. Which is why, again, David said, teach us to number our days. Teach us to recognize we've been given an allotment. Some of those allotments are much shorter. Some are much longer. Cheryl's grandfather's 104, 104 today, right? He turns 104 today. Happy birthday, Grandpa. 104, he's in his allotment right now. I'm like, Lord, is my allotment gonna get to 60? I don't know, but I have an allotment. 
that has been given. Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse one, there's an appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die. Do you know that time? Most don't. Most do not know. Moses did. Paul did. Peter did. But are you ready to meet your maker when that time comes? Because it is appointed once for a man, for a woman to die. And then comes judgment. Well, verse 9 tells us, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. And the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So this one verse is stuck right in here in the midst of the farewell to Moses. And it's what I'm calling, number four, the deployment of Joshua. (laughs) Joshua is now deployed to service. Joshua, who would never be another Moses. Joshua's great. Joshua's a commander. Joshua Like Moses, we'll see the Lord face to face. Differently, Moses saw the Lord face to face in a very amazing, supernatural, intimate way. Joshua would see the Lord face to face in Joshua chapter five when he sees the commander of the Lord's host and recognizes that he's standing on holy ground. Oh, this is the Lord in flesh. So Joshua's gonna see him as well. But Joshua was never another Moses. He was not called to be a Moses. He was not the deliverer. He was the commander. And Joshua comes along, and while never being another Moses, he was called and equipped for his task. And that's important for us to recognize. Don't try to be like somebody else. Don't try to be another Tom on the base. That's his thing. You're called and equipped for a different task. You do what you are called for. You do what you were equipped for. You stay in your lane, and you serve Jesus there. The laying on of Moses' hands on Joshua signified now the passing of the baton of leadership, but it was not passing on the spirit of Moses onto Joshua. No, this was now a new leader for a new day. And by the way, we've said before, it has to be Joshua. Had to be Joshua to take the people into the promised land. It could not be Moses because there's a bigger picture here. And the picture is that the law was given through Moses Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ, Yeshua. It is Joshua who leads into the land of promise. The law doesn't lead you in there. Grace leads you in there. Well, Deuteronomy, Hadevarim ends with some remarkable final words to take to heart, specifically acknowledging, number five, last one, the distinction of Moses. Watch this. Go back and look at verse five. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab among the highest distinctions of a godly person is that glorious title, servant of the Lord. Moses, the servant of the Lord. Hebrew pastor says in Hebrews chapter three, verse five, now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end. Moses was a servant of the house. Christ is the son of the house. But you know what? Even the son of the house became a servant that we might be saved. The son who left glory 
said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. So the distinction of Moses begins with being a servant. It is your, it is my greatest distinction to serve one another in the name of Christ. Verse 10, since that time, No prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord had sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power, that word power is hand, for the mighty hand and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel." These final statements of Moses are incomparable in light of all the other Hebrew prophets. No other Hebrew prophet is talked about this way. It's defined or described this way. And what's truly amazing is Moses used some of these same exact phrases to describe God earlier on in this book. Listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 24. O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand, your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? But here Moses is described as having a mighty hand. Deuteronomy 4.34, Moses said, has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm and by great terrors? See that? Mighty hand, great terrors there in verse 12. Signs and wonders in verse 11. As the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So signs, wonders, mighty hand, great terror. These are descriptors of God and yet used now as the divine epitaph for Moses. Why? Why does Moses get described in the way God was previously described? Because God rubbed off on him. Because, well, you remember when he went face to face with God and came back, his face lit up, glowed. God got on Moses, so to speak. And so Moses ends his earthly life, listen to me, God-like. God, not, not God-like like you might think, like, I don't know, Egyptian gods or or Greek gods, or God-like. No, but he ended his life like God, or we would say Christ-like. Christ-like. The Christ-like person is the person who by simply following Jesus looks like Jesus. And you know a few of those. You've seen him in your life. You could probably name some names right now. She is so Christ-like. He has just got such a Christ-like demeanor You're not saying that he or she is Christ or has the power. What you're saying is Jesus has rubbed off on them. And this is how Moses is described. And I think the distinction of Moses is best explained there in verse 10, whom the Lord knew face to face. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 2, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. That's the distinguishing factor for Moses, for anyone, that you be known by God. Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them 
and they follow me. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Then, how does he say? Face to face. Now I know in part. Then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. My brother called me yesterday. Called me up on the phone. And he goes, so Rick, what do you think about Migdala Bear? I'm like, what do I think about Pooh the Bear? What, what? What are you saying? What do you think about Migdala Bear? I'm like, Ron, I don't know what you're talking about. Can you give me some context here? What do you know about the Tower of Migdal? And all of a sudden, what was dim began to clarify a little bit. What do you know about the Tower of Migdal? And I'm going, Tower of Migdal, Tower of Migdal. And I had the experience yesterday that I have all the time when people come up and go, hey, Rick, listen, when you were teaching Genesis, you said this. What did you mean by that? I'm like, let me check my notes. I don't know all this. I don't retain all this stuff in my brain. I study it out. I bring it to you. Then I go to the next chapter, and I don't know what we talked about last week. Right now, I don't know that much. I really don't. And what we share, and I've told you, when you hear wisdom, when you hear truth, when you hear divine knowledge on a Sunday or a Wednesday, hey, that's the word of God, man. I don't know very much. I know Jesus. I know Jesus, but I also know that then I am going to know fully. Why? Because I will know that I am fully known. Now, now someone might say, Does, doesn't God know me fully now? Doesn't God already know Jim Crouch? Doesn't he know you, Jim, inside and out, better than you know yourself? Of course he already knows Jim. But Jim does not yet know fully how fully known he really is. I love those word plays. I don't know how fully known I really am. I know God knows me, but man, when I get there and fully comprehend and know how much he knows me, how fully he knows me, how loved I am by him, that, That is why death is not something to fear. That's why death is not a concern. It needs to be faced, needs to be expected, accepted as it is, humbly received, all of that. But it's on the other side of that that we will be fully known even as we are given that full understanding of, of his relationship to us that we truly can't fully comprehend today that's such good news there's a synagogue ritual I'd like to do it with you that is done usually spoken uh, or often spoken at the end of the reading of a book of Torah but it is always spoken in synagogue at the end of the reading of Torah so when they get through with Deuteronomy in the Jewish synagogue there's a ritual thing that is spoken in the Hebrew it's hazak hazak venit hazek I'm not going to make you say that. But I want you to repeat after me and let's do this together. Be strong. Be strong. And let us be encouraged. See, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Be strong. Be 
Be strong. Be strong. And let us be encouraged. 